0: Dick has been the pastor here at CBC for the past 10 years. Prior to that, he pastored the North Delta Evangelical Free Church, which is near Vancouver in Canada. He's also been a missionary, believe it or not, to Budapest, Hungary. Uh, He also trained young people in fighting poverty and hunger in uh, the District of Columbia, and he's married to Anne, and uh, together raised four wonderful children, homeschooled them, and actually one of them, the eldest, is in college right now. He has his doctorate in ministry and missions and discipleship from Northern Seminary, and his master's in divinity from Regent College. He's authored two books, and one is fresh off the press. The one he's talking about tonight is called The Meaning of Missional, and the second is just coming out. He co-wrote with Debbie Bellingham. It's called The Quiet Time Scrapbook, Ideas, Exercises, and Resources to Rejuvenate Your Time with God. I think the title explains itself. Uh, These are going to be actually available in the lobby. You can pre-order them. They'll be here in about a week. They make a great Christmas gift. The title of today's lecture is actually Supporting Missions, or Sent on Missions, the Meaning of Missional for Our Lives in Church. So without further ado, Dick, please come share your heart with us. Thanks
1: for coming. I want to start this evening with a story from when I was 21 years old. And uh, first, let me share a couple statistics about, uh, which explain why I'm starting with this story. The first um, has been talked about a lot lately, It's um, even, there's a popular book by, by this name called The Rise of the Nuns. The nuns are those with no religious affiliation. When they fill out those surveys, they check none in terms of religious affiliation. And what has been happening in our country, as you may be well aware, and in the Western world in general, is that each succeeding younger generation has a greater percentage of those who are nuns. And so for the millennials, those who are currently between the age of 22 and 37, 35% of them identify as nuns. Pew Research did this study most recently in 2014. They do it every so many years. They'll be doing it again in a few years. Okay, so then here's the second statistic. By next year, this one shocked me, half of Americans will be millennials or younger. And that percentage of millennials and those younger, of course, is just going to continue to increase every year. So do the math. Nearly half of the U.S. population and rising are millennials or younger. And 35% of those, and if the trend continues rising, are millennials who don't affiliate with any religion. So question, have you noticed this in your churches? We've certainly noticed it here. And that's why I want to start with a story of when I was a young adult. In my case, I was still in college. Uh, This was the summer before my senior year. And I went on my first mission trip. I went to Romania for six weeks with a a team of others, some from my college, others from other countries uh, like South Africa and Belgium and England and Australia and New Zealand. I had never met Christians from so many different countries. And in Romania, where we went, we saw poverty like I'd never seen before. We got sick from drinking the water. We experienced culture shock together and and wrestled with an unfamiliar language. And these experiences stretched us and they grew us. In one town, we visited some drunk men were angry that we were there to talk about Jesus in their town, and they physically had bricks in their hands and were threatening to throw them at the bus that we were in, that we were traveling in. And we were on the bus praying while our leader and and interpreter were um, thankfully able to talk to these men and defuse the situation. We prayed a lot on that trip because we were over our heads. Uh, For many of us, it was the first time that we had preached on the street uh, and in markets about Jesus. We also preached and taught in churches we handed out gospel literature. Here's a, a picture um, of me handing out the Gospel of John in Romanian. These were so popular that we didn't have enough for everyone who wanted them. We would just get mobbed after we shared the gospel as we then said that we had these available. I, I could tell you more stories about Romania, but, but here's my point. As a young adult, this was my first experience with what we often in the church call missions. And it changed my life, and it changed my faith. Wow, it was hard. It was stretching, but it was exciting, too. And it opened my eyes to a whole world out there, a world of need, a world where God is at work, but where workers are needed to step in and join in what God is doing. And partly as a result of that trip, when I graduated from college, I spent three years as a missionary in Budapest, Hungary, as Kaz mentioned. Meanwhile, I was reading missionary biographies, stories of the lives of other missionaries, people like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and Hudson Taylor and George Mueller and Amy Carmichael. These men and women who were courageous and who sacrificed greatly and who took risks for God. And they they lived by faith. They prayed bold prayers and God often answered them in amazing ways. And, And it seemed to me that this was a lot like what I read about in the Bible as I read about Jesus and about Paul and Peter and Moses and Elijah. And so my own missions experience and the stories of these missionaries, they strengthened my faith and they shaped my perspective and my character as a young man and my sense of purpose in the world. Well, why am I telling you this? To point out the power that stories have. Whether they're the stories that we live or to a lesser but still very real extent, the stories that were told about other people. Stories shape us. And I was shaped by these mission stories and these missions experiences. Now I want to contrast those stories with another story. The story that I heard and experienced in the churches I attended in my 20s. The story these churches seemed to be telling was this. We know that you're trying to live your life, and it's hard. Life can be so discouraging. So we're here on Sunday mornings to offer you some encouragement and a little inspiration to help you get through the week. That's the message I heard in some of the churches that that I attended or visited. In others, it was a little bit different. It was, God really wants you to be pure and holy, like God is. And the world is full of temptations. So be at church as much as you can. We'll keep you and your children safe. And will remind you, will exhort you, will even guilt you in, to help uh, encourage you to be as good as you can be. Now, I realize those don't actually sound like stories, right? They're more like statements or, or messages. But, but here's the thing. When, when the church isn't consciously telling a story, what happens to our message? People fit it in, they, they work it into their own story. Whatever story they're already living by. And here's the story most people are living by, by default. Their own individual story. The story in which they are trying and seeking to find a happy life. A life where they're safe, where they're secure. A life where they're comfortable. A life where they can realize their dreams. It's the American story. It's the story of American prosperity and individualism. And, and here's what I was hearing in the churches I attended. God is here to help you improve your own story. To to make you a better person, a holier person, or a, a happier and more a productive, peaceful person. Let God supply the spiritual part of what you need. That's primary. And then trust God for the rest of it too. Now, step back with me for a minute and think with me. When I was immersed in missionary stories, both the the ones I was living, the one I was living myself and, and the ones I was um, reading about, Those missionary stories sounded a lot like the biblical story. But how about the story I was hearing in church? To tell you the truth, it was a very different story. And it did not strike me to be the one I was reading about in the Bible. And so as a 20-something, I was quite discouraged and bored by the story I was hearing in those sorts of churches. I wanted more than that. I wanted a a bigger story, a a story where God was at the center, not me. And God was um, amazing and alive, awesome and at work, a story which sounded more like the Bible and less like a spiritual version of a self-help group. And so I'd like to pose a question to us this evening. Why are the young people today leaving the churches? Is it because churches are offering them too much of God and God isn't what they want? Or could it be that young people are leaving because churches are not offering them enough of God? Well, there probably isn't just one answer, right? And certainly many young people don't have the perspectives and the experiences that I had when I was in my 20s. But millennials are very concerned with purpose and with mission And with where the world is headed and what role they can play in making the world better. And and so let me ask of, of our churches, do we have a story to tell them which relates to and makes sense of what they're concerned about? Now let me ask an even more important question. Is the story we're telling in our churches the same story as the one the Bible is telling? Are we telling the biblical story, the Christian story? Or is the story we're telling actually a lightly Christianized version of the American story of individualism, self-help, and self-improvement with some Bible verses and biblical principles sprinkled in? To help us answer that question, what I'd like to do now is, is remember with you what the biblical story is. I can't do it in detail in the time we have, so I'll just hit some of the the high points. And I'm sure most of you already know this story. So this is by way of reminder. But as you hear the story again, ask yourself whether this is the story that your church is regularly telling. And which is shaping the identity and the purpose of your church and those in it. And after I tell it, I'll I'll make some suggestions about um, what this story might mean for our churches and for our lives today. So the story the Bible tells, of course, begins with God creating the world good. And God creates humanity and puts humanity into this creation to tend it, to take care of it, to cultivate it, to bring out the best in it. But early on, humanity makes a fatal choice. They decide they can better get along in God's creation without God's help by deciding for themselves what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what's wise and foolish. They decide to call their own shots and to be masters of their own destiny. And, you know, thousands of years later, we can ask, how's that working out for us? The biblical story tells us right from the start that this choice, this sin alienated people from God. And not only from God, but... From one another and from themselves and from the creation as, as the ground was cursed. Their ability to till the ground was cursed. And, and people felt shame, alienated from themselves. They also mistrusted one another, alienated from one another and from God. And in their desire to look out for themselves they they uh, and to find their own way in the world, they were not above, when necessary, oppressing one another. And so violence increased and injustice and suffering. And how did God respond to all this? Well, God was grieved and angered to see God's good creation wrecked and spoiled and to see his creatures mistrust him and turn their backs on him. And God didn't save humanity or bail them out from the consequences of their choices. In fact, at times God punished them, but God did not give up on them. God also had mercy on them because God loved them. And so God began a mission, a mission to save humanity, a mission to save God's creation. How did God do it? Well, to begin, God called a couple named Abraham and Sarah. God called them to leave their life behind and to begin a new life with God. And here's what God promised in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Here God is giving Abraham and his family an incredible purpose and and an incredible mission. All peoples on earth will be blessed through them. God's saying, out of all the peoples of the earth, I choose to have a people, my own special people, and I am going to work through them to bless, to extend my blessing to all the other peoples of the earth. Now, right here early in the story, it's not clear how this is all going to work out, but it becomes clearer as the story unfolds. And so let's fast forward to the time of Moses. By now, Abraham's descendants have grown to be many thousands They've become enslaved in Egypt, but God miraculously brings them out. And God then makes a new promise, a new covenant with them at a mountain called Sinai. And what does God tell them in Exodus 19 at the mountain? God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations... You will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You'll be my treasured possession, God says, and a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a special set-apart nation, which will live a different way, following God's ways, and you will also be a kingdom of priests, What do priests do? Well, they they mediate the relationship between God and and people, in this case, the other nations, to bring people into relationship with God, offering people's sacrifices and gifts and confessions to God, and offering God's teaching and forgiveness and blessings to the peoples. And, And so here we see in Exodus 19 that God hasn't forgotten his mission to bless the nations, or, or his promise to Abraham. Here, through Moses at, at Mount Sinai, God is saying to Abraham's descendants, come be my people and be part of my mission to the world. Be my kingdom of priests. Be my holy nation. All right, so fast forward. How does that work out as the story continues? Well, there's ups and downs. There are high points, like under the leadership of, of the Israelite kings David and Solomon. If you read the story of David in 1 Samuel 23, and you listen to the names and the ethnic backgrounds of those whom David attracts into his administration, there's all these people from many diverse foreign nations in his palace and in his army, in his administration. Solomon also has visitors from as far off as Sheba, wherever that is, maybe somewhere near Ethiopia. And these foreigners come and they see and they experience the wisdom that God has given Solomon. And wisdom was highly valued in that culture at that time. Then there are low points in the story too. God's people rebel against him and they reject God's leadership and God's ways. They, they oppress the poor. They, they fill the land with injustice. They uh, mimic the ways of the surrounding nations, worshiping the gods of those nations. They give God a bad name. And, and they turn the other nations away from God by their behavior. And so they actually damage and get in the way of God's mission. And so God punishes them. God sends them into exile. And yet, even in exile, faithful Jews like Daniel and some of his friends are able to show how great their God is and what their God is like. God is still, wherever possible, working out his mission through His people, whoever is faithful that he can find, to to make himself known through them and to offer his goodness and his blessing to the peoples of the earth. Well, let's move now from the Old Testament to the New, because it's in the New Testament that God's mission really moves to a new level. God sends Jesus, God's own son, to um, establish the kingdom of God, to save the world from its sin, to Reconcile the world to himself. How does God accomplish this? By the ultimate act of loving concern on the cross. God takes on himself the consequences of the world's rebellion and brokenness and sin. So that we can be spared it. So that we can be reconciled to God. Brought back to God. And then reconciled to one another. And free of shame. Um free of sin, free of what binds us, healed and made whole as God makes us new creations. Why are we saved? Through Jesus. Why did God work this act of salvation? Because God loves us. That's the first reason. Also, there's another reason. If you're following the bigger storyline, it's that God saves us so that we can continue as God's people to participate in God's mission. So we can extend the blessing of Abraham to the nations. God has not given up on his original intention so that we can be a part of God's people, part of the kingdom of priests, the holy nation, for the sake of blessing the world. And so what does Jesus do? He begins to gather together a new people, beginning with a group of 12 followers. And what does Jesus do after his death and resurrection as he leaves his followers, who are more than 12 by this point? Jesus commands them... Matthew 25 or 28, go to all the nations, make disciples of them, baptize them, teach them to follow me and to follow my ways. Or as Jesus put it in John 21, I think it is, as the father has sent me, so I am sending you go tag. You're it. (laughs) I'm sending you now on my mission, on God's mission. Continue the mission. And as we read the rest of the story of the New Testament, that's what happens. Jesus' followers go. Sometimes they drag their feet, and God uses events, even persecutions, to push them out. But bit by bit, fairly quickly, in fact, the the little movement spreads. And small groups of followers of Jesus begin springing up all over the world of that day. In Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Ephesus, in Corinth, eventually in Rome. And what is this group? What are these groups? Well, no longer are they just mainly blood relations of Abraham. Now they're people from all the nations. Enjoying finally the blessings promised to Abraham. And busy sharing those blessings blessings with others through faith in Jesus. And then how does the biblical story end? With mission accomplished. The gospel gone to all the nations. Jesus come back to reign as Lord. And at the end of the Bible, we're left with an amazing picture still in the future of a new heavens and a new earth where all is made right, all that's wrong is redeemed, and the world is is restored and transformed fully to God and to its original goodness, a new creation. Those who reject God's salvation are cast out, but representatives from all the nations are a part of God's eternal future. All right, there, the whole Bible in like 10 or 15 minutes. (laughs) I left out a lot. But can you see the broad storyline? What a story. So question, is this the story our churches are telling? Do people in our churches know this story? Not just some of the little stories within it, but do they know the whole, the, the big story? Do they know that it's their story? And do they live like it's their story? Do they live as if church and believing in Jesus is about more than just some comfort, some encouragement to get them through their week or or to save them from hell and then protect them from the corruption of the world until Jesus comes back? Is the whole biblical story shaping our churches Is it shaping who we are, what our priorities are, what decisions we make? Do we live and operate like God is on this grand mission to save the whole creation and we as God's own treasured people have been brought close to God and then also sent to be agents of God's mission? Well, with this question in mind, I want to tell you um, another story. And in it, I'll try to address where we are as churches today and why the churches I came across in my early 20s were not telling the story of God's mission to the world. Then I'll close with by answering the question, which is the title of the lecture, Supporting Missions or Sent on a Mission? Here's the story. It picks up where the biblical story ends. That movement of outreach, of growth, of, of mission, which began with, with Jesus and which Jesus sent his followers to continue, that movement continues beyond biblical times. Jesus' followers continued to passionately and perseveringly be agents of God's mission, telling and showing the good news about Jesus Christ. And as a result of their witness and the, the miracles that God did through them, and their loving service and sacrifice, and their sufferings even for their faith, people continued in that time to be swept up into this growing movement so that within 300 years, according to scholars like Rodney Stark, around 50% of the Roman Empire identified themselves as followers of Jesus Christ. Imagine. And just before this 300-year mark, a tipping point happened in this Christian movement. When the Roman Empire embraced Christianity and made it first an official religion and then the official religion of the empire and eventually of Western civilization. Constantine's the guy who gets the credit for this or the bad rap, depending on who you talk to. And very quickly, this this major change began to change the whole fabric of Christianity. Christianity went from a minority movement, which was under-resourced and often despised and sometimes persecuted, with few professional clergy and even fewer church buildings, to an attractive, respectable, publicly sanctioned institution. After Constantine, people began flooding into the churches, historians tell us, for all sorts of reasons, some spiritual, some economic, some political. And so to vastly overgeneralize the result, the Western church entered a period identified with Christendom where Western culture was Christian and almost everyone was Christian churches and clergy now had power and resources. And in many ways, this was seen by the church as mission accomplished. The church had won the world to Christ, at least the world they knew at the time. And so churches adopted a new role and a new identity in the world. Instead of being a missionary movement and continuing the biblical story of bringing God's mission to the world, churches became chaplains of a Christian culture. Their job was to care for people's spiritual needs and also to provide a a light religious and moral education so that people could be good citizens of their Christian nations. And this has continued, more or less, right up to the past century. And during this period, missions became something reserved for other lands, for uh, far-off pagan places outside of Christendom. And so we'd send missionaries to those places to Christianize them if we could. But missions and missionaries weren't something that we needed at home. If anything, at home, we needed some evangelism. We needed to to go out and find the strays and the lost and the backsliders and the black sheep and to invite them back home to the church and back home to Jesus. To tell them that if they repented and if they put their faith in Jesus, God will forgive them. And through Jesus' death on the cross, they can be saved from hell, they can go to heaven, and in the meantime, they can come back to church and grow to be better Christians. But this is what we call evangelism. It it assumes people outside the church already know who God is and what God is like to some extent. And that people respect the authority of the Bible. And that people understand what right and wrong are. That there is right and wrong. And some things are right and some things are wrong. There's such a thing as sin. And that heaven and hell are consequences for everyone one day because we're all going to live forever. And so evangelism is about connecting the dots for people and explaining why Jesus came and that we're sinners and why we need to put our faith in him. Being good and going to church aren't enough. We need a personal relationship with Jesus. And everyday Christians could be fairly easily trained to do this kind of evangelism with a basic gospel presentation. But that's very different than missions because... Missions is, remember the song, Please Don't Send Me to Africa, right? Missions is, is where you have to go far away to a pagan culture and you have to sacrifice greatly and, and you have to help the people there uh, because often these are very impoverished cultures. You have to learn the language. You have to learn another culture. You have to figure out, for starters, how to explain to them that there's one God and, and teach them what that God is like, not like they're pagan gods. And what the true God expects and what God views as sin and how sin separates us from God. And so missionaries are super committed specialists who, who sacrifice and who train to do that in far off places, that difficult, difficult task. And so that's how things were more or less under Christendom. But have you noticed that since the 1960s or maybe before Christendom has been crashing down all around us. Western culture is rapidly de-Christianizing. It's becoming pagan again. It's becoming a mission field. And so here's the question. Is the church adjusting? Or are we still living out the paradigm of Christendom, of being a chaplain to the culture? Offering them encouragement, offering them support, offering them a light moral education. And doing some evangelism for those on the outside to try to bring them back in. And what is our posture now when it comes to missions? Is it just that we send out missionaries, that we support missions in far-off places? Or have we recovered from the amnesia that we developed during Christendom about what mission actually is? The amnesia, which is still reflected, I would submit, in much of the theology that we believe and we teach, most of which was developed by non-missionaries during Christendom. Have we woken up to our true story? The story that God is a missionary God on a mission to save his world. And that we have not only benefited from that mission as believers, but We have all been sent on that mission. All of us. I love how 19th century uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon put it once to his congregation. He said, everyone here is either a missionary or an imposter. Do we realize that as far as the Bible is concerned, a church is a community of missionaries living on the mission field? Should we still support missions and send missionaries to far-off places? Certainly. But do we realize that an even bigger reality when it comes to missions, bigger than the fact that churches send missionaries to the mission field, is this, that God is sending His church, our churches, on God's mission, and the mission field is all around us. God has sent us all as missionaries, literally. The the fact that, that we send some people to other places is part of a bigger call that we all share. That we are sent by God on God's mission. I love the way Christopher Wright puts it. If you don't know Christopher Wright, he's an Old Testament scholar who's sort of the successor to the ministry of the Anglican John Stott. And Wright says this, he says, it's not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world as that God has a church for his mission in the world. And friends, this is not just semantics. It's not playing with words. It's not about beefing up our our local outreach a little more. to to bring a few more people into the church and to help a few more people out in the community through our outreach ministries. This is rather a a fundamental paradigm shift in terms of our identity as churches and as Christians, in terms of what our story is, which which shapes who we are and, and shapes what our purpose is. This changes everything if we're not simply called to be churches that support missions, but if also God is calling us to be churches which are sent on God's mission, then we need to let that sentness influence and transform every aspect of what we do. Our programs, our Christian education and formation goals, our priorities, our budgets, our politics, and our daily habits and lifestyles as Christians. Here's the way uh, Kenan Callahan put it. This was all the way back in 1990. He said, the day of the church culture is over. The day of the mission field has come. The day of the local church is over. The day of the mission outpost has come. The day of the professional minister is over. The day of the missionary pastor has come. Let me ask you, how would your church be different if you thought of yourself as a mission outpost instead of as a church? Well, in my book, The Meaning of Missional, um, I tell in more detail the, the three stories that I just shared with you. My story as a young adult and a young missionary trying to find my place in the church And God's story, the big picture biblical story, as well as the Western church's story, how Christendom um, and it's Constantine and his successors changed what Christianity was and how Christendom is now ending and what that means for us today. And then I get more practical because this is all so 30,000 feet, right? So big picture and overwhelming. So I get more practical into what does it mean to be sent on God's mission? our churches and for our everyday lives because the question of how this applies is huge and so let me close with just one last application story uh, of what this shift toward missional perspective and identity has meant for me and then in the q a we can talk more about um, application if you want to as one example let let me tell you about how all of this has has applied to the way i do christian education in sunday school a number of years ago, I taught a Sunday school class on evangelism, how to tell people about Jesus, and we did it here in this building, in this in a, in a classroom on a Sunday morning. And um, I presented some some really great training material, in my opinion. Uh, some great insights, some great practical exercises. But would you believe that during that class on Sunday mornings? we didn't actually encounter one real live person who didn't know Jesus. And I don't believe I ever asked the participants how many chances they had to put into practice what we were learning. So fast forward several years. I I was growing, I was learning, I was seeking to be more missional myself. And and I said to myself, you know, I don't want to do much of that anymore. to to teach people about following Jesus when when most of it is is head knowledge. And and there's no application and there's no accountability as to whether they actually do it. And so one adjustment we made as a church is we, we continued Sunday school, but we also started introducing some discipleship groups, which we called huddles. And in huddles, there was accountability built in. We'd ask, what are you doing with what you're learning? How did it go this past week? And there was also plenty of application. Um, we would actually go out and do a prayer walk together. We would go to the mall with $5 uh, Dunkin' Donut gift cards and and see if God would lead us to people that we could give them to and talk to them and try to be a blessing to them. And I thought, wow, we're really missional now. Look at us reaching out here at the mall. This is, this is just great. But one of the guys in my huddle who was also an elder at the church He'd previously been part of a church which was way more missional than our church is yet. And he said, you know, these huddles are good, but but there's still so much information and sitting around and talking and, and the little we do go out and, and do mission, um, we're, we're just doing these little short artificial exercises on occasion. He said, we've got to get to know, or we've got to, sorry, we've got to get out there and we've... We've got to do this stuff together as a lifestyle in in our normal lives. We've got to learn on the job together by doing mission together. And and that's what he did for me. He had started almost every Tuesday night going to Murphy's in Yorktown. And I started going along with him because he was actually better at this than I was. And uh, he showed me how to befriend people, how to listen to them, how to... Talk to them about God in natural ways, and, and he coached me. We debrief afterwards, and and so that's just one example of what missional Christian education could look like. There's there's many others, but it's one example of of education on the mission field in real life, which is a long way from a church classroom and a whiteboard. So that's just one of many changes. Um, which have been involved in what it's meant for me to become more missional. There are others we could talk about during the q and I just want to close us in prayer. God, we thank you that you have given us a story from Genesis to Revelation. We thank you that you loved us so much that you paid the ultimate price yourself to go on mission, to reach us, and to do whatever it took to make it possible for us to come back to you, to come into your blessing, to be your people. And we thank you that you've given us a purpose for our lives in the context of your bigger mission. God, we all already live this out to a certain extent, and yet to another certain extent, we are very aware of how we fall short. And I pray that you would continue to move us and shift us to be more fully shaped into what you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, that was a lot. And uh, we just want to take some time to engage and um, to invite you to answer questions. Kaz is going to come around with a microphone. We are recording this, so you can find it on our website. probably by next Tuesday or so. And uh, so I appreciate if you use the microphone. Sarah has a question. Do I want a stool? Thanks. No, I think I'm okay standing, but thank you. I'm Tori Robinson from First Baptist Church in Tarrytown. I, I
2: appreciate what you said, and, and I, I don't mean to start with a, a, a hard question, but it's going through my mind. When you said this changes how we view politics given the fact that that is such a divisive topic
1: even within our churches, uh, what, what, how, how does that look? Um, that's a huge topic. I'll, I'll give you just one small potential answer to it. And that is that if we, as... I'll just pick on evangelicals for a minute. If we as the evangelical church closely align ourselves with one political party... we in effect cut off half of our mission field. Because if um, a liberal 20-something living in Brooklyn gets the message from the broad culture of the church that they have to become a conservative Republican to become a Christian, there's a huge barrier there which may not allow them to even hear the gospel um, and hear who Jesus is. So... What the answer to that is, of course, very complicated. But in thinking missionally, we, we want to ask in our political um, discourse, and our political questions, not only what's best for the moral fiber of our country, but what's best to give the gospel a hearing so that people can get to know Jesus. Again, huge topic, a lot more to say there, but that's just one little thing that comes to mind. Other questions? Eve has one. Eve is from?
2: Arsening. (laughs) Arsening. And from this church. Uh, Dick, what can we expect God to do to sort of prod us? He had some ways to move people in the first century and through the centuries. What's the sort of thing he's
1: doing to really
2: understand the big picture and, and, and act in the way he wants to?
1: What's God doing to prod us? I think we could all probably answer that question because it's probably different for each one of us. Um, I think I'm a little bit unique in that I started as a missionary. So when I came back to America, I said, well, I'm just going to keep being a missionary to America. And if I'm a pastor, I'm going to try to still view myself as a missionary and a trainer of missionaries. Um, Some things I see in the broader culture there's a missional movement there's a lot of different people who use the word missional and they mean a lot of different things by it but but there is a mission there is a missional movement trying to tell this big story of God's mission to the world and call the church to lean more deeply into that story Um, I think we're also feeling the squeeze of you know the the 20-something generation has always left the church, but generally they get married and they come back. And I think we're feeling the squeeze of they're a lot slower to come back if they come back at all. And we're asking the question, what does that mean for the future of God's work in North America? So I think God can use that squeeze to prod us. Um, probably a lot of other answers we could give. Those are just a couple that come to mind. Kathy from Osning also.
3: From CBC. Um, how do we um, uncover in dealing with millennials what part of the Bible story, of God's story, is good news to them? Um, how does that unfold? Like, you know, they, they are uh, people who want to see the world be a better place and all that thing. All those kinds of things, but how how does God factor into their lives when they seem to be going along without him?
1: I don't know that there's just one answer to that, but just to pick up on the fact that the millennials tend to be cause conscious. Conscious InterVarsity Christian Fellowship has developed a gospel presentation, which tries to paint not only the story of individual salvation, which is very important, but the bigger picture of a world which was created for good and then has been broken and and ruined by our sin, and the way God has come into the world to restore people back to himself, but also to begin restoring the world, even though we only get little tastes of that um, in our churches and in our lives, but then how to be called into that salvation is also to be called to be, um, to be sent to, into the mission of bringing that salvation. And so they have found that to be very effective with millennials because it's, it's a, a way of communicating the gospel and the big story in a way that tends to resonate with them. Um, again, not for all millennials, um, but it's, it's one part of the answer perhaps. Yes.
2: I'm Sean, I'm from here, and uh, I'm just amazed that uh, um, my prior church, the pastor just went to Hungary with their four children last year as a missionary. And uh, we've been hearing that the, they're struggling with the language and uh, or you know, the foreign land. It's not even Budapest, it's in one of the more remote areas. The question to you is maybe from your experience, I'm always torn apart, especially with the children, when they're reaching the school age. One of them is going to to college um, next year. And my heart really want them to be back here if they can. But while their parents are really committed to this uh, mission, to a foreign land, maybe you can offer some perspective on that.
1: So the the kids are teenagers, and the oldest one is going to be going to college? Um, and they just moved there. So they were raised in America? Yeah. Well, that, I mean, I'd be happy to chat with you that, about that personally. There's probably other missionaries who could speak to it much better because they've been through that experience. I was single when I went to Hungary. Um, we, we have to trust our kids to God. Um, that's of course part of the answer, but then what does that look like? Um. I mean, I'd mean, i be happy to chat with you about it and maybe we can draw on some other missionaries who could have more wisdom to share on that any other questions yes Joe yeah,
2: Joe Urban was from the First Baptist Church in Peacekill another question and whether it's your experience or someone in your church's experience in in this missional effort um, percentage of millennials that you talk to that that believe it, that God exists?
1: I would say that most of the millennials that I have interacted with being a pastor over the last you know, 10, 15 years have been millennials who have some connection with church. Um, I haven't had a lot of good talks with a lot of millennials outside of the church, and that partly has to do with millennials going away to college and not coming back to Westchester because it's so expensive and there's nothing to do here, they say. Um, so I don't think I can give you a good answer to that question that would represent millennials in general and not the ones who have some connection to, to church.
2: Corby from First Baptist Church. I like the picture that you painted of Christendom and how churches get caught up in bringing people into the church, filling the church, that kind of thing, if I, if I understood well. Isn't to some extent, though, that a necessary foundation for that church to become, practically become missional?
1: I think that's a missionary question that every church has to ask. Given the people that God's called you to reach, it used to be that most people had grown up in church or been in church for one thing or another throughout their life. And so for most people, attracting them back to church would be an effective way to reach them with the gospel. There are still people like that around, um, but they're a shrinking segment of the population. And so the question is, who's going to reach all the people who've never darkened the door of a church and, you know, they think, well, you know, those church people, they're those uh, oppressive Republicans who I don't want anything to do with. How are we going to reach those people? So, I think it's a missionary question of um, of who we're called to reach, who's the mission field, and what's the most effective way to um, lower the barriers, to build the trust, to be able to communicate the gospel with them. And that's going to be different for different churches. Am I, I don't feel like I've totally answered your question. I think there's another piece to but it. But the
2: people who are doing the reaching, uh-huh. they have to have a solid foundation to be able to do that. Yes. And... So when I talk about Christendom, I mean, you have to build that foundation into some group of people who can go out in different communities, different environments, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. different age groups, political groups, that kind of thing, who have a solid enough foundation to be able to reach them with the gospel, with the love of Jesus Christ, with the, the truth, with
1: so the, disi- the actual truth. Discipleship. People have to be discipled. Yes.
2: and And so when we talk about Christendom, yeah, we get very... Unfocused in what we do in a lot of the church programs and so forth, but there's still a core foundation that's necessary to be able to send
1: absolutely and that
2: that was my question where how do we make sure that that that's taking place as well if we move away from a traditional church structure
1: that's a very important question and it's not an easy one um, because I would say the North American church is trying to answer that question through trial and error and the leading of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can look at China and the house church movement there and the way that small house churches disciple their people. They're loosely networked. They're networked. You know, they're very loosely organized, but they're deeply networked. And, you know, you can't point to a lot of church buildings or professional pastors, but you can point to cultures of deep discipleship where people are equipped and raised up to serve and be missionaries Um, and they don't do it the way we do it and so the question is if if christendom is ending and we need to make some adjustments what are those adjustments Um, that is a question the church is trying to figure out and I could I think it's a bigger conversation I could share some of the things we've been trying here and some things that others have learned a lot of it has to do with doing discipleship in smaller groups and getting those groups to have a mission together so they can not just talk about it, but do it and learn on the job. But institutions are valuable and they have a place. They have a, a longevity and a, a critical mass that can accomplish things that loosely knit networks can't. So I think churches, the church at large in the West is trying to balance the value of institutions versus the need for more grassroots networky kind of stuff. I think yeah, Barbara had a question.
3: Corby had just asked, and that is that when you have people in the church, what I've seen repeatedly in churches that I've worked with is that people come in, they get discipled, they get trained, they get to feel really comfortable, they get to feel that we are now um, a community together serving, but they don't go the next step of then moving out to the missional side. So the question is, once people get trained, once they get their foundations once they get ready to go, how do you get them to move out of the building, out of the safety
1: of the community, into the mission field? Well, you know I've spent 10 years trying to answer that question. <laughs> but, but I think part of the answer might be that too many people, when they come to Christ, they get brought out of the world that they're in. and They lose all their friends who don't know Jesus, all their connections. And they become part of this church community which becomes a wonderful thing for them but then to reestablish or find a new network of people to be a part of becomes very difficult and so i think a related question is how can we disciple how can we bring church to them enough that they can stay where they are and be discipled there while never losing touch with the networks that they already have easier said than done but, you know, as you know, it's one of the things that we're wrestling with. Well, it's past um, nine, so we'll let Pat be the last question. And then we invite you to enjoy refreshments.
3: Hearing and being interested in people from all different kind of backgrounds.
1: Whatever happened to... Relationships
3: where you were interested in people from all kinds of backgrounds.
1: That's absolutely important.
3: Yeah, and how do you... How do you multiply that caring about meeting people of all kinds of backgrounds?
1: So the heart of mission has to be that we realize how much God loves us and how much grace God has given us. And we have a desire to share that love and grace with other people rather than to protect our own turf or our own comfort. And so there's a heart aspect to this, which we have to, Ask God to continue to give us that heart. And we have to hold up that that heart is what we aspire to as followers of Jesus. Sure.
3: Um, this is in the age range you're talking about. My grandson, whom I have loved as a child and lost contact with him during the teens. He's coming back now. And How? Got interested in Kierkegaard. I love Kierkegaard. I've actually had good phone conversations with him recently. He's asked for books and I am feeding him books. I took to the UPS today a box full of philosophy books Mm -hmm. and I included in those philosophy books really strong Christian Foundation
1: mm-hmm. and, and this I was put pos-
3: a note on every book <laughs> about the role it played on my life and the importance I saw of it philosophically mm. there's there's it's just a whole different world, and it's so exciting
1: yeah, <laughs> so this was possible because of the The relationship and the common interest that you share. And then when you shared some truth, you shared it in the context of your own, what that truth has meant to you personally.
3: I've lived with a non Christian for 40 years as a friend, as a close friend. She's now my housemate. We talk about things related to Christianity every day because we share a love for poetry. Every day. It is the most exciting thing in the world.
1: It is exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's a great note to end on. It's exciting. It can feel heavy. You know, how how do we figure all this out? But it's also very exciting. All right.
3: (laughs) I understand what Pat's talking about. But the thing is that in our emphasis, we're always talking about church as being... Groups of people, you know that that you're not, you don't go out by yourself, and yet so many of those essential relationships are individual, Yeah. and you do feel like, you know, you don't necessarily see them going anywhere spiritually, but you still are. So I, I know I'm, it's that group individual thing that often is a troubling dynamic for me Mm -hmm. you know how you
1: yeah relationships are are messy and life is messy and everything doesn't fit into a neat paradigm and sometimes we we try to love people and we want to talk to them about Jesus but they don't seem interested or we can't find a way or they don't respond and that's all part of, that's all part of this. <laughs> um, uh, let's let's close officially, and um, I'm here to you know if you want to if we want to continue this conversation or any others, and then I'll make my way out and I'll be available if you want your book signed. So thank you all for coming.